Hello and welcome back. This is episode four of the Homo Absurdus podcast. Thank you for bearing with me. Yeah, before I start, I want to point out again my Twitter handle, um, which is Homo Absurdus. That's H-O-M-O-A-B-U-S-U-R-D-U-S on Twitter. Um, it's also where you can find me on Spotify if you search that same set of letters. I want to start this one off by um, talking about last week's episode, which was the discussion I had with Josh uh, about um, libertarianism. Um, there were some real sound issues um, with that, I'm aware of. And thank you for those who gave me the feedback about that. Um, I will be looking into getting some more equipment before we try and set up a second uh, or another interview. Um, and I probably will have Josh back at some point. As I say, he's a great guy to talk to and very knowledgeable about certain subjects. And I'd be love to have him back on the podcast. Um, but so next time we will have a much better setup for recording him. So apologies for that. Um, thank you for bearing with me. But I hope you found it interesting nonetheless. This week, uh, we're going to talk about what is possibly a pet um, thing of mine, uh, pet peeve, which is religiosity um, or theism, if you will. Um, so to start off by pointing out my own position on this, I am definitely... Uh, I definitely fall into the camp of the atheist um, in that I'm not convinced uh, that God or gods exist. That really is all atheism means as well. Now, that's kind of important to point out and maybe something we'll come back to later. Um, but really, atheism isn't anything beyond that. Yeah, it's just that we, we're not convinced that a god or any kind of gods exist. Um, now, that's not to say we don't believe in anything um, or we don't have a set of beliefs or values. And those two things are distinctly separate. In fact, there are large schools of atheism um, that are atheist schools of rather of thought that are um, dedicated to that, like humanism, for example. Um, I don't know if I'm necessarily a humanist. I probably am to some degree, but I, I'm certainly not a theist. Um, which kind of brings me on to belief. Before we go any further, really, let's, let's talk about belief. Because I think it's important to start off by saying that belief isn't a choice that we make. It's something that we're either convinced of or we're not convinced of. Um, and we're convinced or not convinced due to evidence or a lack thereof. Uh, you know, if, if I received evidence that would convince me of a God, I would, by definition, believe in one. And the same is true in reverse. Somebody who does believe in a God has received evidence that has convinced them of a God. So I guess the first thing um, to point out is when you're newly converted, or when you first lose um, all of your religious feelings, and it certainly happened to me and it seems to be a common, a common thing, you feel quite uh, aggrieved by it. Um, you feel like you've been conned. You feel like everyone should know about it. Um, and that's not particularly helpful, as it turns out, in the long run. As much as you may want to tell people about uh, how they're stupid for believing what they believe or how um, they're wrong about it, as I said right then, it, it, it's not a choice. Um, they're just convinced of a thing. They might be convinced for bad reasons uh, or might be convinced by bad evidence, but they're just convinced. Um, it's not something you can really talk them out of unless you examine why they believe. Which brings me, I guess, to the most important question, which is when you are confronted by these things, it's to say, well, what do you believe and why do you believe it? And that can obviously lead you to, therefore, why should I believe it? Why should anyone believe it? Why is it reasonable to believe? And so on. But if you don't start from that point of what do you believe and why, you're never going to get to a point of why they believe and what you can do about that or what you can have that discussion where you can look into what evidence they're using to be convinced. Um, because as I say, belief isn't the part that's a choice. Uh, accepting evidence can be a choice. And you can, you, know, you can accept bad evidence for things that are good and good evidence for things that are bad. But... Yeah, the actual belief itself isn't a choice. It's just conviction. On that subject, when is it appropriate to talk about it? So I do most of my discussions on theology online, 
Um, so when someone posts on, on social media and something overtly religious, I might step in and point out where the flaws are in their argument or, or challenge them on that belief or rather on the, the, the evidence that's led to that belief. And the other time that it comes up for me, at least now, is when I make some kind of flippant remark or joke that offends someone uh, because of their beliefs. And it just tends to come up then. They tend to uh, quite aggressively defend their beliefs. Yeah, I'm not saying that I would ever hold back from doing that. I think I have as much right to my lack of belief as they do to their belief. Uh, and I certainly have a right to criticise something that is patently absurd. And we all do, and we all should. You know, if you don't believe in a God, or if you do, you have the right to say so, and you have the right to be challenged. So, yeah, as I say, I, I try not to intentionally bring this up with people anymore, as I know it's quite a contentious subject, um, which I must admit bemused me. Uh, when I first deconverted, I was very much like, well, why, why wouldn't you want to know what the problem with your logic was? Why wouldn't you want to be better informed? But it turns out a lot of people really don't, and are quite happy just believing the things they believe, and most of the time it's kind of all right to leave them alone and just let them believe that. In, in society and in, in everyday life just to kind of avoid the subject unless it happens to come up. That's not to say that I'm careful about what I say, although I am, but in a very different way. I, I'm not careful to not offend people. I don't hold back anyway. You know, I think the idea of a, a god or gods or of a religion is, is ridiculous um, and I'm not afraid to say so. And I'll defend those beliefs. I'll defend those beliefs with, with logic and argument um, if it comes to it. I say beliefs, almost lack of beliefs, isn't it really? But yeah, so I think that that's the important thing is uh, preaching or politizing um, atheism is is the same as preaching or politizing a religion. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to convince someone of a belief or deconvince someone of a belief, and that's not possible. Um, but when it does come up, sometimes it's worth looking at the evidence behind it. So on those notes, um, let's have a look at some of the, the most common things that come up. I'm going to investigate some arguments here. I've got three uh, interesting and the most common arguments that I hear lined up to talk about in more detail. Before we get to those, I really want to talk about um, a few things that aren't really arguments, but they're refutations that you'll hear quite often. So the, the, the first of those, um, I guess, is that concept that one can't disprove it. Yeah. Um, so this comes up quite a lot. Um, they'll say, well, you can't, you can't prove that God doesn't exist. You can't prove it's not real. Uh, and this essentially is saying, I have an unfalsifiable argument. At the point you have an unfalsifiable argument, that's of very little value. Um, let me explain why, by analogy, if you will. So let's imagine there's uh, a big meal with a rich man who's about to die and has a will that no one's read. Um, about to, he's ill, perhaps, um, and he's poisoned at a meal, very obviously foaming at the mouth, drops into his bowl of soup, or what have you. And one of the guests, who's a detective or some such, stands up and says, ah, no need to call the police, I have the solution, the butler did it. Guests uh, are gobsmacked. So, well, how do you know the butler did it? I said, well, you can't prove the butler didn't do it, so I shall assume the butler did it. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, it's an unfalsifiable position. You can't prove someone didn't murder someone. You can't fight pros to prove someone didn't do something. It's why our legal system is based on the concept of innocence until guilt is proven. So, and you, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty, and, and in that same way, God is innocent of existing until he's proven guilty of existing. Otherwise, all you've got is an unfalsifiable claim. And an unfalsifiable claim is pretty meaningless, pretty worthless, really. So that's the, the first thing, I guess, that I would, I would say about that. When, when that's presented to me, I just make the point that that's, well, that's an unfalsifiable claim. You can't unprove anything. You know, I could start from the assumption that you're a rapist. Um, prove to me that you're not. 
Otherwise, I'll just assume that. We can't prove we're not, so it's reasonable to assume you are. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, and some examples that have whatever kind of example you want to use, there, there are obviously hundreds I'm sure you can think of right now, that would exemplify why simply saying I have an unfalsifiable claim weakens your argument doesn't strengthen it. Um, but that is a common one that you'll hear. The second one that's quite common is when people say defend their beliefs by saying, well, God helped or assisted in something or saved me in some way or intervened in my life in some way. Which begs that, that immediate question of like, well, what about all the people God didn't help? You know, so if God's capable of helping people, why are children raped and murdered? Why do young babies die of stomach cancer in agony for weeks? Um, why do people starve to death in their millions? Does God not care about them? And inevitably we're confronted with, oh, well, it's all some part of some greater plan. Or, you know, they'll be rewarded in the next life or some other horrific nonsense. And, and frankly, that's just not good enough. <laughs> Um, just say, well, you know, there is an answer, but I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. It's unknowable. It's another unfalsifiable claim in a way, but it's worse than that. Um, essentially, what they're saying is that God had a good reason to do that to those people. You just don't know what it is. Well, it could do with some explaining then. I think, you know, if if the level of disparity is going to be that he's going to cure your auntie's cataracts, but he's going to let children in Africa die because they literally don't have water, um, that needs some explaining. I would expect that, and any reasonable person should expect that to be explained. Um, and if it's not, then the interventionalist God theory kind of falls down. Um, that's not to mention, obviously, the problem with with interventionalist um, the interventionalist concept in the things like prayer can be scientifically shown to have no significant impact uh, on well-being or anything else. But yeah, it's um, it's an odd one and one we hear again. But I always like you know I'd like to point out. Well, what about all the things God didn't do, or effectively, therefore, because if God's all powerful, that God did do? God does a lot more harm than good, then, surely, because there's a lot more harm I can see in the universe and, and in the world around me than the good things that He's intervened and done. Um, the, the other one I hear is that it's just an opinion, um, and it, it's not, as we said, stated at the beginning. But yeah, you hear that quite often. Um, you know, it's just my opinion. I just believe that. I just choose to do that. Well, first of all, you don't choose your beliefs, as I started out pointing out. But secondly, it's not an opinion. Um, when it comes right down to it, God either exists or he doesn't. Um, that's that's the root cause of it. It's what we call true dichotomy, which I think we talked about a little bit in episode one. And that means there's a truth claim being made here. You're saying that you're siding on the God does exist. It's, it's not an opinion. You're you're claiming a truth, which is fine. But then I can and should be allowed to ask you to demonstrate that either um, with evidence uh, or with argument. And while we're on the subject of evidence, actually, it's a good point to point out what is good evidence and what is bad evidence. And what's an appropriate level of evidence for, an, for a particular claim? Consider these two propositions. If I, if I say I've got £20 in my wallet, it might be rational to assume that that's true. I might believe that fact, or you might believe that fact. Simply because I have money, I have a wallet, I carry cash. If you know these things about me, it would be reasonable to assume that I have £20 in my wallet. You might not even need to check my wallet to believe that's true. However, if I make a claim that I can fly, you're going to want significantly more evidence than just to assume that it's true. Well, it's not reasonable. I've never seen that before. I've never seen people flying. Where's the evidence? Um, and simply to fall back and say, well, it's just faith, isn't really good enough. On the subject of faith, while we're there, um, faith for me seems like a very bad tool for getting to the truth. Um, and that inevitably is what I'm really concerned with. I'm concerned with whether or not the claim that there is a God is true. And if it's true, 
I will believe it and I will want to believe it. If it's false, I would not want to believe it. And faith doesn't seem, like I say, a good way of getting to the truth. Uh, one could have faith about anything. I could have faith that white people are genetically superior to black people and be wrong. You can have faith that love is a healing power and be kind of right. But how do we tell the difference between those two types of faith? The type of faith that leads us to an obviously wrong conclusion and the type of faith that leads us to an obviously right conclusion. And again, those two terms are relative for sure, but how can you tell the difference between those two types of faith? Uh, the honest answer is you can't. And at the point you can't tell the difference between those two types of faith, doesn't that mean that as a tool for defining what's true and what's not true, faith is basically useless. It's, it comes back to that point of, well, it's just my opinion. No, it, it, it's not. It's not just your opinion. It's a fact that you're claiming. Um, and if it's a fact you're claiming, then you need to be supp supplying some kind of supporting evidence to it. And finally, um, before I move on to the, the main sort of arguments I want to talk about today, I do come across a lot of passive aggressive nonsense. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you is an often heard one. Um, which really, I think, means the, un the unsaid part is I'll pray that you'll realise that I'm right and you're wrong. Or, um, I don't know, you'll, you'll find out when you die. Or, there are no atheists in foxholes. Which is a ludicrous thing to say. On that one, actually, is one of the ones that really does annoy me, that, that concept. There's no atheists in foxholes. I, I would actually say that the only people in foxholes are atheists. If you have a true and absolute belief in an interventionist God who's going to protect you, why on earth are you digging a hole to cover yourself from bullet fire? Surely you just stride towards the enemy and God would keep you alive. The only kind of person who's going to dig a hole is someone who doesn't actually believe that, or isn't actually convinced that a God will protect them. Otherwise, just wasting a lot of energy digging a hole. Um, so actually, I would redefine it as there are only atheists in foxholes. But that's another, another point. I, I think the point they're making is that when you're under pressure, you call out to God. Yeah, and when we're desperate and we need something to fill our knowledge, we might claim that we know something or have some... Uh, special power or knowledge that we just don't have. And just because you claim something, you say, doesn't make it true, unless you can go on to demonstrate it. Which universally theism and spiritualism and the supernatural in general fails to do. Um, and yeah, I have investigated this in some length. I won't go into my whole deconversion story, but I have spent a lot of time in my life looking into this issue, thinking about it, looking at different people's opinions, looking at different arguments that support it, that go against it, etc., etc., and I, I've never really found anything that even approaches evidence of it. There's no positive proof for the supernatural. Uh, there's no positive proof for a god, which I would lump into the supernatural if I did that. And that for me is is an issue. It means I, I can't believe it, um, or I don't believe it, um, because I say that belief is not a choice. I simply remain unconvinced of the validity of that of that claim that there is a god. <laughs> start off with the fine-tuning argument. Now this essentially says there are so many billions of different factors in the universe that need to be exactly what they are otherwise the universe itself couldn't exist and life couldn't exist and this indicates some kind of creator who designed it to be this way and designed it to be this way one argues with us in mind. There are a number of problems with this. Um, this argument normally however is presented mm, as a dice rolling argument, talks about rolling 10,000 dice, and them all come up sixes and the odds against that. 
And again, there's some basic misunderstandings of probability here. Um, definite numeracy happening here. You know, once once a single die has been rolled and it's come up as a six, that's a one in six chance. If the second die for also to come up a six, they argue would be a one in thirty six chance. Obviously, it's also a one in six chance because the first die is locked at a six. One times six is six. Um, and there's definitely a combining of probabilities here that's happening when they're talking about different uh, different elements, the different constants in the universe um, that they believe in some way to be connected to one another. You know, that the, the constant of gravity is somehow connected to the constant of the speed of light. Um, and that's just simply not true. There's, there's no connectivity there. And so compounding those probabilities gives you an unrealistic number, which sounds sounds amazing. But even if it were the case, even if I were to accept that, yeah, fine, the universe existing is extremely unlikely. Um, let, let, let's assume that's the case. It, it certainly doesn't get, get me to a creator in any way. Um, but even before I get there, I have to confront the problem that it's not unlikely. The chance of the universe existing when I exist within the universe and that I know the universe exists, or I assume at least, the probability has reached one. Yeah, that's one in one. The universe exists therefore the universe exists so the the, the the chances of the universe existing are literally one in one because we wouldn't be here to ask the question about it otherwise the other point i guess is when you think about the concept of the big bang and sort of all the best kind of explanations that we have for the start of uh, cosmological time at least um is that prior to that point if that's a good term to use when everything is constructed into a singularity and there's no causation so things don't happen one after the other there's effectively no time in the concept that we understand it then there's an infinite amount of time i guess well there is no time really for these all these different probabilities to play out until such a time as those probabilities play out to allow the universe to exist as it does so again then the issue of it being unlikely because it's unlikely over time becomes less relevant because time ceases to exist it does of course lead to the argument of what happened before that um, that's a different argument. But yeah, the fine-tuning argument, as I say, really talks about how unlikely it is that the universe exists in the way that it does, and the, the way that um, the Earth exists in the way that it does. The real problem, though, as I said earlier, is even if I accept all of your arguments as being valid, all of these arguments, rather, as being valid, and that it is incredibly unlikely that the universe exists, it certainly doesn't bring me to creator, and moreover, it doesn't bring me to anything that relates around human beings. 99.999 recurring um, percent of the universe is utterly uninhabitable to humans. A good 70% of this planet is utterly uninhabitable to humans. Um, when I'm talking about deep water, um, you know, we'll be crushed by the water pressure. It doesn't make any sense, even on the, the most, microscopic, uh, most microscopic of levels, let alone macroscopic. Um, you know, we can't exist in a vacuum of space. We can't exist under high water pressure. We can't exist without a very specific set of oxygens, etc., etc., etc. And there's a ton of evidence that shows we've grown into our environments, not the other way around. You know, the whole of evolution is based around this concept, which is why some theists have a real issue with evolution as a concept, because it essentially denies that particular argument that the world and the universe as a whole was designed with humans in mind, in that we evolved to fit the environment we found ourselves in, and we're very different from humans that existed in different environments in eons past and all animals have their own way of doing it and just because we become conscious enough to question these things doesn't really lead me to a, a conclusion that these things were made for us uh, i'm always reminded in these cases of an argument made by douglas adams who wrote the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy amongst other other great books 
who likens it to a puddle uh, suddenly becoming aware of itself. And it looks around and says, well, this is a very fine world I find myself in. This is actually a very, very nice, very nice hole I find myself in the ground. It fits me, fits me very well. Actually, it fits me extraordinarily well. I seem to be in every possible crevice. It's almost as if, almost as if this, this hole was made purely for me to exist in. Um, then he goes on. But yeah, it's that concept, isn't it, of, of looking at how things are now and going, well, surely I can breathe. So surely the universe was, was designed with the ability for me to breathe in mind, which is ridiculous. We can breathe because we evolved here to breathe the air that, that we now have to breathe. So it, it's a very a very easily defeated, uh, refuted argument. But it is an argument that comes up quite quite commonly. Um, so, you know, how, how, how unlikely is our birth? You know, how unlikely is our existence? How unlikely is that everything will be exactly the way it is for you to exist right now? Surely that speaks to a creator. And, well, no, it, it doesn't really. As I say, there, there are universities, colleges, museums and libraries absolutely jam-packed full of evidence that explain how it's the exact opposite. We have come to fit our environment. Our environment was clearly not made to fit us. Um, I mean, yeah, merely by the fact that we evolved and the environment, the environment changes and both those things happen, can be shown to happen. Just, just utterly blows that argument out of the water. But even when it's taken back to its most simplest form, which is to say that it's very unlikely the universe exists, I think that even within itself is is nonsensical, and, it, and it's clearly innumeracy. Um, and, and preaching that to others and using it as a convincing term for, for other people to go and you know, I don't know convince the the atheistic masses with is just erroneous and, and and kind of cuts away at their own argument, makes it weaker, if you will, because it it can very easily be shown why they're wrong. All right, the second argument that uh, I still think is quite common is generally referred to as the cosmological argument, and there are, there are various forms of this particular argument. It's nice in that it's actually in syllogistic form, which makes it a lot easier for us to dismantle and look at. But let me quickly lay out those premises. So essentially this, this is a, a, a syllogism, so it has two premises and a conclusion. We talked about this back in episode one. The first premise would be that God is the ultimate being. Now this normally defines that, uh, essentially is defining God, which is an issue with that first premise, but we will we'll come back to that. Uh, but God is the ultimate being, so he's all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, etc. Uh, the second part is that God could possibly exist, whether it's in this universe or some other universe um, or some other reality, there is a reality in which it would be possible for the ultimate being to exist. And it then goes on to say, well, if the ultimate being can possibly exist, uh, the conclusion, therefore, is that it must exist everywhere, because as the ultimate being, it would be omnipresent um, and all-powerful. So, yeah, essentially it says God is all-present, God is omnipresent, God could possibly exist somewhere else, and the point that theory that God could exist somewhere else, God must exist in here as well, because God is everywhere. There are some sort of obvious um, issues, I think, with this argument. The one I normally do is I'll normally stop them around premise one and just go, whoa there a minute. Because one of the first premise, if we look at it, is premise one, God is omnipresent. God is all-powerful. God is the ultimate being, whatever that particular version of that argument seems to be. Yeah, you're you're giving God specific um, criteria and specific um, attributes before you've even shown God exists. 
the, the very conclusion of this argument is therefore God exists. So you can't really start from a point where you're giving him attributes before you've got to therefore God exists. Um, so my normal point there is, so well, I, I won't accept that first premise because you, you're giving attributes to something you haven't yet shown exists. I'm quite happy with you saying, if God exists, he is the ultimate being. It, you know, that, that I'm fine with. What that leads us to is, if God exists, he is the ultimate being, and if he's the ultimate being, he can be conceived of in some conceivable universe, and if he can be conceived of in some conceivable universe, and is the ultimate being, therefore he exists in this universe. Which can be reducted to, if God exists, he exists. Great. Doesn't really take us anywhere. Um, it's just a reaffirmation of your belief. Um, and yeah, I say it, it, it commits an obvious um, fallacy early on in that one of the premises isn't valid. Um, that, that first premise uh, that God has the following criteria and the following traits before you've shown God exists is obviously erroneous because you have to say, well, you haven't even shown that God exists yet. You can't therefore claim that he has certain abilities, powers and properties. Um, and I would, I would have to include the term if. And the point you do, the whole argument becomes nothing more than if God exists, God exists. While we're on the subject of this argument, there's another form of this argument that you sometimes hear about a creator, which says that, and it is effectively the same argument, though it's worded quite differently. Um, it, it says that, you know, everything needs a creator. The second premise would be that the universe, therefore, had a beginning and had a creation and had a cause. And that cause, whatever it is, must be God. Therefore, God exists. Again, I have a problem with that one as well. Uh, though I say it's not quite the same argument. It's often heard in parallel and people often get too confused. Which is that, first of all, as uh, Richard Dawkins points out um, in The God Delusion, then God needs a creator and that creator needs a creator and so on infinitum. Um, you'll often hear special pleading at this point saying, well, you know, God's outside the universe, so he doesn't apply, those rules don't apply to him, which is literally what we call special pleading, which is where you're saying, my conclusion doesn't have to fit my premises. Um, sure, <laughs> I don't know quite how you're validating that special premise. What, what nature is it of God that he has that makes it different to the universe? Um, why couldn't the universe just be this thing that didn't need creating? Why couldn't that be the ultimate thing? Why couldn't that be the end? Why have you felt the need to tack this extra bit on the end of it? Um, I often like to talk about the universe being a, a bubble and everything inside of it. Um, and then you think about the skin of the bubble on the outside. That's outside the bubble. So if the universe is finite, which it needs to be in order for God to exist outside of it, um, then the very edge of that, the outside edge of that, that finite universe is outside the universe. And whatever applies to God will also apply to it because it's outside the universe. So again, there's, there's no need for that additional creator. It's an additional conflict. Uh, or additional complexity that's been landed on this. Um, but yeah, so both those arguments fall down. They're a bit better, as I say, they're using the syllogistic form, so at least they're, they're internally consistent most of the time, um, but there's normally a problem with their premises. Um, so in one case, I say we have um, the idea that everything needs a creator, which will always lead to special pleading. And the, the first one, you've got God is the ultimate being, uh, therefore God must exist, essentially. Um, which obviously has a flaw in its first premise, which is that it's giving attributes to something it hasn't yet shown even exists. So both of those for me have some inherent flaws and are essentially largely the same argument um, and largely unconvincing. Now those I do hear quite commonly from apologists and apologists will generally scale their arguments. So probably a good time to stop and talk about apologists before we get on to the next one. But yeah, these are common arguments heard from apologists, um, and they will generally scale up their arguments. So they'll, they'll probably start with some basic refutations, like you can't disprove it, then move on to some of these more positive claims that you'll need to pick apart. Um, 
I never think there's anything wrong with just going, oh, okay, that's a really interesting point. I'm going to go away and think about that and then come back to them later. Um, or just answer it for yourself later. There's no need to prove yourself to anyone. Don't feel that, you know, you, you don't, no one's going to change their mind in that moment. You know, you're not going to unconvince a Christian by talking to them. They're not going to convince you by talking to you. But you might go away and plant seeds of doubt. And it's about how you think about these things um, that's important. As I say, a lot of apologists will scale up their arguments in that way deliberately. So they go, oh, you can find a hole in this, you can find a hole in this, oh, but you can't find a hole in this, so this must be true. And just because I can't find a hole in it right now doesn't mean I can't go away and find a hole in it later. As I say, both those arguments have very clear and obvious holes. You just need to stop and think about what they are. So I think that's an important point. Now, for those who don't know what an apologist is, an apologist is someone who um, attempts to explain or rationalise their beliefs uh, through logical argument and debate. Um, they're predominantly Christian, although there are now some Muslim ones on the rise. Other religions don't tend to go in for it that much because they're not really about converting. But yeah, it's generally monotheistic and it's generally Abrahamic. But yeah, th those two seem to be the predominant ones that I see um, both online and in real life. Yeah, and as often as I can, uh, or can be bothered, depending on the mood that I'm in that day, I will try and engage with them because I've heard a lot of these arguments now. Uh, and they're the same arguments. Both these arguments are just presented to you. Very old arguments. You know, some of them four or five hundred years old or more. And they've been soundly debunked. Um, you now have the whole of the internet in the palm of your hand. You know, pick up Google, type in the cosmological argument when you hear it, and just go, oh, okay, what about this? What about that? Here's a problem with that premise. Here's a problem with that conclusion. Why exactly this is special pleading? Why is special pleading not okay? Get into that. If, if, if that's a thing that you want to do, if that's a thing that you find that you need to do to, to protect your beliefs, um, to defend your uh, lack of beliefs, I suppose, in this case. Which is certainly something that I do when confronted with those issues. But yeah, see, mostly you're going to hear those from apologists, uh, people who, are, who study their religion very deeply. Um, another thing that you'll come up with apologists while we're on the subject of apologists, um, you'll often hear quotes from their particular holy book. So I'm going to use the Bible as an example, as it's the one that most commonly comes up in the society that I'm in, but one could use the Quran or the Torah, the, the Hadiths or whatever you want, maybe. Which, you know, well, in the Bible it says blur. You know, why would I care? Is my almost my immediate response. Is, I don't care what it says in the Bible. Why would I, why would I care what it says in the Bible? Well, because the, what it says in the Bible is true, they reply. Right, well, how do we know that? So we're taking it back to that question of what do you believe and why do you believe it? You know, what do you know and how do you know it? I said, well, the, the Bible says that the Bible is true. It says it's true in the Bible. Wait, right, but why would I care what it says in the Bible? Because it's true. Ah, uh, uh -huh, and how do we know that? Because it says in the Bible that it's true. Right, but why would I care what it says in the Bible? Let me just go round a few times so you show them they're on a circle. You know, circular argument and circular reasoning is, is definitely a thing that's going to come up quite often. They're, they're, especially if they're one of the religions that bases um, their beliefs from a particular text or book, um, they're going to refer back to it over and over and over and over again. Um, and once you can show this is a circle, you've effectively won the argument because you can just not accept the evidence of their circle. Um, you know, I, I don't care what the Bible says. Why would I care? Because it's true. How do we know? Because it's in the Bible. Why do I care what the Bible says? I'm back to square one. You've not convinced me. You've not moved this argument on. You're just going around in circles. You know? I think we covered um, circular reasoning back in episode one, so I'm not going to drone on about it too long. Um, but yeah, um, that's uh, apologists. But for now, uh, we're going to move on. <laughs>
the final topic that I'm going to talk about today is uh, TAG, or T-A-G, which is a particular type of argument used by uh, theist apologists. Again, we've just spoken about. Um, so TAG, or the Transcendental Argument for God, essentially argues that in order for there to be a scale, well, frankly anything, there must be an ultimate end to that scale. Otherwise you enter uh, a reductio absurdum, let's say a reductio infinitum even, um, something that carries on forever. So, which obviously would mean there'd be no fixed points on the scale. So for example, uh, they might talk about morality in this way. They might say, well, how can you know an action is good or bad or better or worse without there being an ultimate good? So how can you say that uh, slavery, there's one that literally came up a few weeks ago with a, a person on Facebook, um, how can I say slavery is wrong without the understanding that there must be a moral absolute? My normal refutation to this is when I talk about this, um, is say that I can have objective moral standards within a subjective moral framework. Um, and if that doesn't quite do it, or if I'm explaining it to a, a wider audience who I'm not sure they'll keep up with me like that, I might say that it's like a game of chess. I can choose to play a game of chess and I subjectively choose that. And once I do that, I subjectively set my goal. I subjectively say I'm trying to kill the enemy king whilst keeping my king alive. Then once I'm playing the game of chess, there are quite clearly objective moves within that game that will get me closer to my goal, which is subjective. So in the case of slavery, I might say my, my subjective goal overall is the well-being of humanity. And once I have to set that as a, as a goal for my morality in general, I would say, well, slavery is obviously objectively a bad thing. And I can, I'm quite confident in saying that's objective and as valid. Um, Tag says, or the Transcendental Argument for God says, you can't have that. You can't have a subjective goal. You can't choose a subjective goal. And if you do, it's less valid for some reason. Um, and I've had, in that, in that particular argument I had with the theist, he got quite upset because I pointed this out. I said, well, all I'm doing is I'm working within a subjective framework and then I objectively have better and worse things. He said, well, I can still choose to have um, an objective uh, moral authority. I said, well, yeah, you can choose to have an objective moral authority, but you can't demonstrate that exists. So it doesn't really further your argument. Um, and I thought that's not something I need to take into, into account. But yeah, you, you'll find this riddle throughout um, apologetics. Now, predominantly, that's going to be Christian apologetics. Uh, and really, what, it, what, it's, what it's trying to say is that you can't say things are good or evil. You can't say that knowledge uh, exists. Um, you can't use logic without there being an absolute definition. Uh, it talks about hard syllogism, uh, hard syllogism, hard solipsism, sorry, um, which is where you're saying, oh, I don't even, you know, how do you know things? And you keep reducing, reducing that, reducing that, reducing that back to say, well, how do you even know that that logic is logical? And there, yeah, I know. And there are a number of, of obvious issues with that because then it becomes to, well, I don't even know if I exist then. By, by hard solipsism, I can't even show that I exist. I have to have the presupposition that I exist um, and that my senses are valid. Um, and if I can't even show that I exist, how on earth do you get that to that shows that God exists? Or is it even possible? That's uh, just bizarre to me. It doesn't further their argument, it doesn't further mine, and it doesn't really further anyone. It's an interesting thought experiment, and by all means go look it up, but it, it doesn't really get us any closer. Um, but yeah, so Tag is essentially saying you can't have correct better or worse is within a scale without there being an absolute at the end of that scale. 
it says that it indicates there must be an absolute view. Um, and I say that's nonsense. I say that there can be absolutely can be objective standards within a subjective framework. That's obviously fine. That's logically coherent, and it's all right. Now that being said, um, Tag also briefly deals with um, various things. It talks about, say, the the problems of morality and knowledge and so on. Um, there's actually quite an interesting um, thought experiment done by a philosopher called Michael Martin, um, who makes the transcendental argument for the non-existence of God, <laughs> or the Tang. Um, and the, this is this is really interesting um, and worth going and looking into. I, I'll quickly kind of go over it. He talks about uh, that logic presupposes that its principles are necessarily true. Obviously, Tag assumes that, that God created everything, including logic, um, or at least everything, including logic, is, is dependent on God. However, if logic is created or contingent on God, um, then God is not necessarily, it's therefore not necessarily contingent on God. Um, he, also, he also talks about science and knowledge and morality and, and many other things. Um, and he's worth going and looking up. I, I'm not going to... Um, I'm not going to go too much into depth and start quoting the man, but um, yeah, go and go and look him up. Uh, say his name is Michael Martin, and he comes up with some of the best arguments against Tang that I've heard, which essentially he calls Tang, T A N G, um, the transcendental argument for the non-existence of God. Um, I believe some people summarise it as uh, P equals not P, um, which may sound very confusing to some people. So, like, well, like I say, go go look him up. Um, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I'd also um, like to say while we're on the subject of tag that even if even when you refute it, um, as I pointed out in the example earlier, apologists, predominantly Christian ones here, will still cling to it. They'll say, "Well, you know, without that, I have no moral basis. I need that for my morality." You, you don't. You know, you've subjectively chosen to have that as your moral, and then you're making objectively good and bad moves within that within that frame. The fact that you've chosen something based on bad logic is probably worse than the fact that I'm basing something on something good. So basing morality, for example, on the word of God um, would mean the biblical God, at least, um, the Christian God or the God of the Bible, at the very least, says things like homosexuality is wrong, um, slavery is utterly permissible, um, you can't wear mixed fabrics, um, you can't shave certain parts of your beard or plough certain parts of the field, and you can rape someone and pay their father 30 shekels or whatever the hell it is to, to suddenly own this woman and, and all kinds of other bizarre nonsense. Whereas if I take the time to construct a philosophically sound subjective framework to work in, like for example saying I want to increase the well-being of humanity as a whole as much as possible, then the objective right and wrong moves I'm making are actually probably going to be morally superior to those ones based on an assumption of a god. Because the morality of that god, by all evidence, is just a book. And all you're doing is, is just slavishly obeying that and saying that's more valid than thinking for yourself and setting your own subjective framework. So think for yourself. Set your own subjective framework and then work objectively within that. That's just as valid. Always has been. Right, before I leave you uh, today, um, I'm going to leave you with a quick question as a part of TAG just to give you an idea of the kind of stuff that um, I have to put up with on a regular basis. And... You know, you might come across, to be fair. Um, I'll give you a little quotation here from the internet um, by a apologist. Um, not any particular apologist, it's more of a, a straw man argument, but have a look at it, have a listen to this next bit, um, and think how you might refute this or where the holes in this logical argument are. <laughs>
God exists. He is therefore the arbiter of ultimate moral authority, by which we compare and contrast our own standard of ethics. Therefore, those who assert that God does not exist cannot account for morality without being viciously circular, since to account for morality as an emergent property of our evolutionary heritage is to claim that our senses, reasoning and memory are valid according to their own standards of proof. How then can the atheist say that his or her subjective experiences are objectively valid if there is no absolute standard of morality against which to judge them? Therefore, even those who deny the existence of God, by virtue of the fact that they are nevertheless morally sound, demonstrate his basic essential existence. Yeah, so have a think about that one. Uh, and get back to me, hit me up on Twitters, uh, Homo Absurdus, that's at H-O-M-O-A-B-U-S-U-R-D-U-S. Uh, and let me know if you've got uh, if you can spot any of the holes in that argument. Um, um, I'll give you out the answers at the start at the top of next week's show. So while we're on the, the subject of apologists uh, and common arguments you hear from them and things associated with Tan, um, let's just have a quick quick conversation about the idea of cognitive dissonance. So some of you may already know what cognitive dissonance is. Some of you may not. So I'll very briefly explain it. The concept of a cognitive dissonance is to believe two contradictory things to be true at the same time. Yeah? So the word of God is perfect. Um, God says slavery is all right, but I admit that slavery is wrong. This is cognitive dissonance. Um, it means when you start asking those difficult questions of theists, in this case I'm referring to Christians, obviously, but Muslims too, to an extent, um, they'll often go to a very high defence mode, or they'll find it difficult to answer that question, or they'll try and divert the subject, normally with TAD, if they're Christian apologists, but they could go anywhere. Um, and they'll avoid the subject. And this is a key point. If someone's having trouble giving you a direct yes or no answer to a simple question like, is slavery wrong? They're probably experiencing cognitive dissonance. And this is remarkably uncomfortable. I remember it from when I was a believer. I'm sure the majority of you listening now remember, will remember this feeling if you know what it is. Which is this horrific feeling that you're being contradictory to yourself. And the only thing you want to do is avoid that and get away from it and just get rid of it as quickly as possible. Um, it's a key It's a key to show that that person's uncomfortable with their own uh, beliefs and assumptions. And in order to believe or assume things they do, they've had to put up with cognitive dissonance. Which I guess brings me to my conclusion um, to an extent, uh, at least for this section, which is that I, the only way um, that I am comfortable now uh, is the only way I'm left with no cognitive dissonance is by saying I don't know to those big questions. And never be afraid to say that, you know? Um, never be afraid to say, well, how did the universe start? I don't know. Maybe we'll never know. But I don't know is going to get me close to the answers because I'm going to try and find out. They're just making up some nonsense about a magic man waving his hand and bringing light into the world. Claiming to know the answers when you haven't got the evidence stops learning slows us down as a species and holds us back. So for all the gods that don't exist, for their sake at least, question, be sceptical, try and find the answers, never be afraid to say I don't know, that's often the most honest answer, uh, and try and break down, confront and break down that cognitive dissonance. Yeah, 
confront it, break it down, argue with yourself, argue with others, talk about it, lay it out there. Um, I'm more than happy to sit and listen to um, arguments about all kinds of things. Um, you know, the, the internet is a great resource for this. Is that anything you can think about is probably being discussed on YouTube at length. Um, podcasts like mine hopefully are helping as well. But yeah, never be afraid to question things. Never be afraid to admit you don't know. Um, and always, always confront and fight that cognitive dissonance. <laughs> said uh next week uh i'm going to go into conspiracy theories which should be an interesting topic i'm going to cover maybe one or two uh in a little bit more detail so if you've got any ideas as to conspiracy theories you'd like to hear me go on about or talk about um then please let me know um i say up my twitter handle uh or directly if you know me personally um, and yeah let me know what kind of conspiracy theories you'd like me to to look at and talk about um i think a lot of the arguments are going to be very similar. Um, they're not going to be the same argument presented in the same way, but I think we're going to find the same problems um, with certain things. Again, it's largely a lot of that, not wanting to say I don't know, isn't it? But um, we'll look at those in detail next week, and so I'll, I'll cover a couple of those. Uh, and then the week after that, I'm probably going to take a bit more light, um, maybe read you something or um, talk about uh, something more um, artistic, perhaps, and, and less philosophical, just for a bit of a change. But yeah, I say, as ever, um, if you've got any questions, feedback, criticism, appreciation, whatever you want, hit me up, H-O-M-O-A-B-U-S-U-R-D-U-S on the Twitters, and let me know what you thought, ask those questions, have a think about that stuff that I talked about earlier, that quote I read from, uh, uh, I think it's a quote, it's an inventive quote, um, that concept of a tired argument, Think, see if you can pick your way through it, um, yeah. But for now, I've been Homo Absurdus, and that's all, folks. Bye.